Adam mentioned earlier, my name is Derek Van Ruler, and I'm the lead pastor of Sunbury City Church, and I've known your pastor for six, seven years, and he's been a good friend to uh, me and to our church, as well as Pastor Dennis, and it's been a joy to be able to serve uh, in this region with them over the last uh, six, seven, eight years together. But let me pray before we get started uh, as we go to God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you this morning that we get to celebrate, that we get to be reminded that there is none like you, that we get to be reminded that you are faithful, that we get to be reminded that you've been gracious when we deserve nothing but damnation. We thank you for the gospel, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the way in which you transform us, uh, conforming us to Christ's image. We pray now that as we come to your word, we may be tired, we may be distracted, we may have other things that are on our hearts, and we pray that in this moment now that you would speak to us, that your word would just Uh, be impressed upon our hearts, that you would give me words to speak that are honoring to you and uh, edifying to this congregation. I pray that your word would just uh, continue to do a greater work in us and remind us that you are God of all and that our hope resides only in you and you alone. I pray. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go and grab it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation 2, uh, as was said earlier, verses 8 to 11. Uh, just looking at these three verses, as Pastor Adam said, I could preach on anything. I started thinking, what might be most encouraging for you and I in this season, in 2022 with all that has transpired over the last couple of years. How many of you like to look to the future? You love to plan, you love to think about what might happen. You know, th- that's me. I like I- I've got my life planned for the next couple of years it feels like. And so often uh, as I look to the future, I'm kind of trying to estimate what I might see unfold before us. And if there's anything I, I feel like I'm sensing is that the maybe time of uh, prosperity when it came to following Christ, the, the time of ease of following Christ might be diminishing, at least for us in the United States. I'm not an alarmist, but I think that we can kind of see on the horizon that, that there might be Days, there might be years, there might even be decades in the future that following Christ becomes a little bit more difficult. I want to encourage us this morning, what do we do with that? How do we stay faithful to Christ no matter what swirls around us, no matter what's going on in the culture around us, how do we stay faithful to Jesus Christ? Some of you might know the story of the five missionaries to Ecuador from 1955. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Uterin. Five men who desired to be used by God uh, hopped on a plane and flew down to the jungles of Ecuador. If you've ever traveled to another country, especially in remote parts, uh, seeing somebody that looks like us is kind of a, a sight to see. And for us, we, we don't think much about it, but, but for the people living in the jungles of Ecuador, it, it was both fascinating and frightening at the same time. And so in an effort to win their approval, in an effort to win their uh, openness to the work of the gospel, they began to fly overhead in, in lower baskets full of gifts, hoping that this tribe might receive them so that they could share the gospel with them. So a few months later, in January of 19, 
56, they, uh, they approached this people group, the Alcas people in the jungles of Ecuador. They're about four miles away from the tribal uh, land or the tribal uh, where the tribe was living. They made it about four miles away and they began to make contact with this tribe. And early, early stories say that it seemed to be going well. They thought maybe we've found favor and we can share the gospel. So on January 8th, 1956, these five men wake up. They put on their gear. They grab their gifts. Just in case, they strap their guns to their backs because they don't know what they're going to find as they make their journey. And they make their journey to the Alcas people one more time. As they make their journey, this tribal people begins to surround them with spears in hand, ready to kill them. Now, I don't know how you'd respond. I mean, these, these guys had guns. <laughs> I, think, I think if I'm in a fight between a gun and a spear, I'll, I'll take the gun any day, right? And yet, in that moment, knowing that they had the gun, they purposefully withheld using it because they knew a certain truth that guided all of the work that they were doing. They knew the reality that if we were to kill these people, they were going to die and spend an eternity in hell away from God. But if they killed us, we get to go to heaven. So with their weapons in hand, they allowed the Alcas people to surround them and kill them. They were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Like, how in the world could they do that? Well, one of them, Jim Elliott, is famous for saying, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to keep what he cannot lose. Do you see the sweetness there? You see, he understood that this world was going to unravel, that this world was, was just fleeting, but he knew that his hope was in heaven. And instead of trying to keep this life so tightly that he was going to lose anyway, he willingly sacrificed it to gain the life that he could not lose. And out of great joy, uh, Nate Saint's sister returned and through the providence of God led one of the tribal's people to faith in Christ who then uh, opened a door to the very men who killed her brother and these other four missionaries, and by God's grace, saved those men. With weeping and tears over what they had done, asking, how in the world, when we treated your family like this, how in the world, and why would you come back to tell us, what, why would you do this? And all she could say was just, the love of Jesus Christ compelled her. Church, is that, is that the kind of love, despite what might be going on around us, is that the kind of love that we have? A love that is willing to sacrifice everything so that both God is honored and people know the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, they understood the truth that John and Jesus want us to hear in this passage this morning. They understood the reality that this life is not the finish line, but the reality is that we have an eternity beyond this life, and that is the goal, that is our focus. And they were willing to spend this life for the honor of God and to worship Him forever in the next life. And the only way they could do that is to understand what Jesus is going to show us this morning. And what Jesus is going to show us is that standing firm in trial comes from standing firm in faith. The only way you and I can actually be firm in the middle of trial, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of difficulty, even in the middle of people thinking that you're weird, that you're not sleeping in, but you're here this morning, is for us to actually know this faith in Jesus Christ and stand firm in that. And so with that, let me go ahead and read our passage again this morning. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. 
And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt. By the second death. So, this is the final book of our Bibles. And this is a vision that the Apostle John receives as he's on the island of Patmos. Tradition says that out of the 13 apostles, 12 of them died for their faith. John is arrested for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And they try to boil him alive. And he survives... And it just kind of freaks them out. Like, if there's one person I want to hear a story about other than Jesus in heaven, it's, it's John, right? Like, how do you survive being boiled alive? And they take him and they put him on this island called Patmos. And it's as he's on this island that Jesus speaks these words of the book of Revelation. And I realize that if you've been in the church more than five seconds, you'll realize there's a thousand different views on this book. But sufficient to say that no matter what your view is, Jesus wins, right? No matter what happens, no matter how you view the details of the end times, what I do know is that what Jesus wants us to know, he wins. And our hope can change if we know the outcome of the story. And so in these two chapters, in chapter 2 and 3, we see Jesus speaking to John and, and telling him to write down these words as he's writing to these different churches. Now, there's seven different churches, not because these churches are in particular special or spectacular, but because the number seven was complete or whole. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this is some of my final words that I want to speak to the churches. And all the other six, six churches have issues in them, except this one. There's nothing that they are doing in particular that is sinful, and yet there's still a danger that is, uh, that is before this church, and I think a danger that's before us today that I want to encourage us to, to be prepared for, to be able to uh, withstand this danger and it's the danger of uh, not persevering in the midst of trial. It's the danger of giving up or giving in when trial and persecution happens. And so this morning as we see this, we see that Jesus is writing and speaking to this church in Smyrna. As we look at this, we're going to look at four realities to really help us to be able to stand firm. Okay, so the first reality I want us to see is the foundational truth. If you've ever been to New York City and you've ever seen any construction on the massive, beautiful skyscrapers, you realize that one of the first things they have to do before going up is that they have to dig deep. And the higher they go, the deeper they have to dig. And that's what we have to get. We have to dig deep on the foundational truth of who Jesus is so that that truth will steady us when winds of the culture and pressures happen to us. And we see what Jesus tells us about himself. Every letter, he starts with telling us about who he is because of what is happening in this city or in this culture. Look, if, look with me at verse 8. He writes that, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna. There's a lot of debate. I won't get into about uh, what this angel means, but one commentator just simply means that uh, perhaps every church 
has an angel that's there to guard the truth. Sounds decent enough for me. Okay? But he's writing to the church in Smyrna. Now, why is that important? If you look at a map, Smyrna is just north of Ephesus, and it's actually out of these seven cities, it's the only one that had continuous habitants for the 2,000 years from that period until today. In fact, one of the churches that we partner with uh, in a larger network is there in Smyrna. It's it's mere Turkey. So praise the Lord for his faithfulness 2,000 years later. And yet, as we learn about the, the city of Smyrna, one commentator says that they love to be the, the first of everything. They, on their coins, they would say that they were the first city of Asia. They were the crown jewel or the flower of Asia. They were known for their writers, the Homer, not, not the Simpson guy, but Homer from the Greek epics, right? He was born there. They loved to be first. They loved to be better than everybody else. They wanted to uh, boast and walk out with their chests puffed out like they were better than others. And they were known for a resurrection story in their own history. We read in 580 B.C. that the city was destroyed and in 290 B.C. about 200 and some, 300 and some years later, they actually were resurrected and formed as a city again. So just get your minds around the idea of, of, of wanting to be first and having your own resurrection story. And in the middle of that, notice what Jesus says about himself. He says, the words of the first and the last. Who died and who came to life. Have you heard those words before? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 21, you will see in 21.6, Jesus says similar words. We read in Revelation 21.6, And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? So Jesus is trying to describe to us at that point when he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth and how he's going to wipe away all of our tears and all of our sorrow and death is gone. He describes that he is the beginning. He is the end. And then just look over to chapter 22 Verse 13, coming on the heels of Jesus declaring that he's going to repay each person for what they have done, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So notice what Jesus is trying to say to us in chapter 2, verse 8. It's as if he is saying, I know what this city is wanting to do. They want to convince you that in them there's hope. That they are the first, they are the best, but I am the only one that is first. And I'm not only first, but I am last. I am everything in between. I'm the only one that is trustworthy. I'm before all and I'm after all. Before you even enter into your struggle or think about the trial that you're experiencing, you have to know the God that we serve. And the God that we serve holds all things together. He has all control over everything. Looks like we've got a lot of parents in this room. When your kids were little, this happened to me a couple of months back. You know, when your kids are little and they're afraid, what do they do? They come run into you and then they burrow their head into your chest. I don't know if you ever did this, but did you ever ask, why are you doing this? I did that to my seven-year-old a uh, couple months back. He, he was scared and he came over and he got on my lap and he burrowed in my chest and I just kind of pulled him away like, why are you doing this? Why do you run to me? 
Why don't you run to the neighbor? Why don't you run to somebody else in church or to the stranger down the road? Like, what about me did you run to me? Did you think daddy is powerful? Did you think daddy cared? Did you think daddy could do something about this situation that he could comfort you, that he could help you? And each, each question, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and not in a like pacifying way, but in a trustful way. And it's almost as if, if Jesus is coming to you and I and saying, I know what you're about to experience. I know what's on the horizon, but come to me. Burrow your head into my chest. Trust that I am the first. Trust that I am last. Trust that I am in control of all things. Because notice what he says next. He says that not only is he first and last, but he died and came back to life. If we're honest, death is one of the most scary things that we face in life, isn't it? I know if we're a follower of Christ that we have hope beyond the grave. But death is one of those things that we don't quite grasp. Like what happens in that moment? What happens as, as we take our final breaths and our eyes close? And there's so much uncertainty. And yet Jesus says, I died. I've, I've gone through it. And I came back to life, so I know what it's like to go through the most scary part you could ever imagine. And I conquered it. I have victory over it. And I'm offering that to you. Just think about how spectacular that is. Because as the brother who is uh, leading us in corporate confession said that, that we often just run in shame and, and just kind of cower in the corner like a dog, right? If I were to take all of your actions from this past week, anybody feel confident enough to put them on the screen for the rest of us to see? I guess not. And so if we were to really stop and think about how rebellious we've been to God, if we were really to think about how holy and majestic he is and, and apart from sin he is and how in a moment's notice he has every right to just smite us. And instead of doing that, he sent his son for us. To not just come as a king demanding our attention, not as a judge condemning us, but being born in a lowly stable. To be like one of us. To endure the same temptations you and I endure. To live the life that we could not live. And then, at our very hands, to be put to death. Where he would absorb the wrath of God for our sin. Yet he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And now he's saying that he is offering that to you and I. That he is the first, he's the last, he died, and he came back to life. And that there is hope no matter what you face, no matter the struggle that you brought in with you this morning. There is hope in Jesus Christ. That if you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, and you think, this is not for me, I am way too far, you don't know my life. Jesus knew all of our lives. And he still went to the cross. He still bore the sin of, of mankind to give us life. Church, that's why we gather. That's why we sing. That's why, that's why you're not just doing this on your own, but you come in here every week reminding each other that Jesus is in control, reminding each other through song that we do serve a risen Savior. We encourage each other by sitting under the same word of God. 
Imagine how much confidence that would actually put into us if we understood that we served a risen Savior. Anyone remember the old Popeye commercial? Or uh, uh, cartoon uh, commercial, right? You know, for some reason, Popeye looked a lot like me, pretty scrawny and, and weak. And then all of a sudden, he opened up a can of spinach, which... I don't, I don't get that, like open up like hamburger or something like that, but he opened up a can of spinach, downed spinach, and he becomes this massively strong person that could wipe out anything. Church, that is the reality that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he left, but he didn't leave us with nothing. In fact, John tells us that he left us with his Holy Spirit. The disciples are crying like, oh, you're going to leave us, and Jesus says, it's better. The Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus next to you. That's the power that we have. And imagine if we actually understood that, the kind of power we could have to be able to walk in confidence. It doesn't mean that the trials would be removed, but rather we'd have confidence in the middle of the trial. And that's incredibly important because of what Jesus shows us next. And that's the forceful trial. This trial that's being pressed upon this church. And I think this trial that, that if we're going to be bold in following Jesus and telling others about Jesus in living in your work or working in your workplace and living in your neighborhoods for Jesus, the world's going to press in on you and try to conform you to their view against what Scripture teaches. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. Could you just pause for a moment? The God of the universe sees you. He knows you. And he cares about you. And he cares about the trial you're going through. I remember as a little kid skinning my knee and every time I'd run back to my mom and she would kiss my knee and all of a sudden it, the pain went away, right? Her lips are not magical, right? It was just the fact that she cared and that she was there. But we have a God who doesn't just care, but he can actually help. And it should be ointment for our souls because life with Christ is not always easy. In fact, Jesus tells us that in Matthew 16, right? We, we so often want to neglect the reality. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. And he says, uh, Matthew writes, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross... And follow me. He doesn't mean wake up in the morning and put your cross necklace on, right? He means die to yourself. Die to your own desires. Die to what you want from life, even if it means physically dying to follow Christ. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke 14, uh, verses 25 to 33, Jesus there tells us that if we're going to follow him, we need to hate our family, hate our father and our mother and our brothers and sisters in order to follow Jesus Christ. And yet so often that's not the message that we hear. We hear a message of, of ease and, and, a, and a life free of trial. And yet, as First Peter tells us in chapter 1, that, that it's those trials that actually grow us. It's the trials that test us, right? It's the trials that show us what our hope is in and exposes, is your hope in Jesus or is your hope in this other idol that you're elevating to the place of Jesus? And so it's in those moments that, that we see that, that the Christian life is, is often one of difficulty, but one of joy. You see, joy isn't, uh, isn't dependent upon rosy circumstances, it's dependent upon the one that we're putting our hope in, in Jesus Christ. 
And so he sees your tribulation. And we've got to be prepared that there might be tribulation. He promises time and time again. But then notice what he says. It's not just that they're going to experience tribulation, but that they currently experience poverty. So in the Roman Empire, uh, most people would do business based upon who you worship. So in Smyrna itself, that uh, everyone was supposed to worship the Roman gods, and they would worship Caesar as God. And so for you to not worship Caesar as God, and for you to worship only one God, would ostracize you from the rest of the culture, so much so that often people wouldn't do business with you. If you have no one to do business with, how are you making money? You're not. You're left to the church and the church alone. And so Jesus sees that that your decisions are hurting you financially. And not only that, but, but probably you don't have as much food to eat. You don't have as much security in life. And he sees that. But notice where he goes. In most of our, our translations, it's in parentheses, but I don't want us to, to miss this, because notice where he goes. He says, but you are rich. It's like he's saying, lift your eyes. Stop looking horizontal. You know, you know for me, I'm six foot tall. Most of my week is six foot tall down. Like this space. Have you ever like walked outside and you know, you're, you're going through a hard season and everything just seems dim and then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, wow, the sky's a lot bigger than what I remember. Wow, those trees are beautiful. It's perspective, right? You're lifting your head off of what you can see and seeing something beautiful. And it's as if Jesus is saying, lift your eyes. Lift your head. You might be poor in this world, but you're actually rich for eternity. You've been given all things. And rest your eyes there, not here. So I grew up in California. If any of you have ever been to California, then you know one of our greatest gifts to mankind is In-N-Out Burger. Anybody ever heard of that? It is a wonderful place. And every time I go, I have to have In-N-Out Burger. But it's a, it's a family establishment. And years ago, the, the president of the company died in a fatal uh, plane crash. And his daughter was, I want to say she was about 10, maybe even a little bit younger than that. And so what they did is they took all of the money that he and his family had and they put it in a trust. And she could not access the money until she was 30 years old because they didn't want her to blow the money or make poor decisions for the company. And so she just kind of had to ride it out until she was 30. But when she was 25, she was still rich, right? That was still her money. She couldn't access it, but she still had it, and that was still her future. She just had to wait a few years. Church, that's the reality for us, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we have a rich future, with the God of gods and the Lord of lords. It might not be the fullness that we're experiencing today, but it is the fullness of the trajectory we're on. And so we need to lift our eyes and see that that's our hope and that's what we're shooting for. And that's where we're headed. In the middle of trial, that's the, that's the way in which we sustain and, and continue. And then notice What else is happening to these people? Not only do they face tribulation and and poverty, but but there's slander. People are speaking evil against them. But notice who it is that's speaking evil. He says it is the Jews who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? The very people of God who should have seen Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the king that they were waiting for, missed him. And now you who are following him, they're slandering. 
And so they're walking around saying, look at us, we're the people of God, we have it together, and Jesus is coming and saying, you're not. In fact, you're of a synagogue of Satan. You see what he's doing? He's even lifting our eyes and and lifting their eyes to realize that that the battle that is waging is not a battle between flesh and blood. It's actually a battle of cosmic powers between Jesus Christ, and as Paul says in Ephesians 6, it's between Jesus and the cosmic powers of the world which are driven by Satan. So they proclaim to follow Christ, all the while they're actually being driven by satanic forces. And he wants to remind them of this. Why? Because verse 10, notice what he says in verse 10. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. It's going to happen. There's no way around it. It's coming. But don't be afraid. Why? He says, behold, again, the devil, he's reminding us that it's Satan that's at work. It's not your neighbor. It's not your family member. It's actually Satan working behind that. We've got to know who we're fighting if we're going to fight well. And he's saying it's the devil that's going to throw some of us into prison that we may be tested. One of my fears is that we can read something like this and we can think, okay, so the devil's the one testing us. And what we can prepare for is is this guy that walks right through the back doors and is wearing a red suit and has got a pitchfork. And we're like, oh, that's the devil. I'm going to resist that. I, I think most of us would be pretty smart. Like if someone walked in looking like that, we'd be like, I'm not gonna listen to that person, right? But Satan's the father of lies. Satan masks around like one who is in the light but is in darkness. In fact, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that even they bought the, the slight lie from Satan against God's character. And so if we're going to withstand, we've got to first know that there is a trial, and then we've got to know how the trials happen, and often the trials are lies. And they're rarely full-on, flat-out, 100% lies. They're often half-lies that just kind of hook you like a fish so that you're reeled in. They sound good to the ear. They sound right. In church, they just lead to damnation forever. So we've got to be careful. How do we prepare for this? Well, if you actually read the passage right before this, you'll see in verse 4, Jesus comes to the church at Ephesus and he says, I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. You need to remember the love that you had at first. Do you ever do that? Go back, you know, my wife and I, we'll go back and we'll look at photo albums of when we were first dating. Wow, man, we've changed a lot. But, you know, we start to look at them and we're like, ah, oh, remember those days? It just kind of rekindles the love, right? Do you do that with Jesus? Go back to the moments in which you first believed and remember the excitement that you had and and how the Bible just came alive and and just begin to incorporate some of those practices again that your own love for Christ would be kindled. Church, we've got to remember the love we had at first so we can prepare and fight. Because if we do... If we fight, if we continue on, we see the third truth, and that is the faithful trust. It lays the foundation for what Jesus is now going to call us to, which is a faithful trust. How do we withstand? 
Look at the second half of verse 10. Jesus says, be faithful unto death. My guess is many of us in here probably have study Bible. If you go down to your notes, look down at the bottom of your notes, you know, chapter 2, verse 10, look at where it says that. Does it give you a list of things to do to be faithful? Does it say 10 ways that you can be faithful? Five ways to withstand trial. Six ways that you can be close to Jesus when trial comes. It doesn't, does it? You know, so often in the Christian life, uh, we just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me the quick fix. Just tell me the eight ways. Jesus doesn't do any of that, does he? What does he say? He says, be faithful. It's almost as if Jesus says, I know you love me. I have given you my word. I have given you my spirit. And I believe that that is enough. Just live out what you know. Just be what I am doing in you. Just live that out and be that. Experience the transformation of God and actually live that out in life. I don't need to give you a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts on how to be faithful. You just need to do it. That's encouraging, isn't it, church? There's not a whole added weight that we need to have to somehow get the good life. That's why I don't understand prosperity teaching that says if you have enough faith, then maybe you can get these cool things in life. Clearly, they had faith. And Jesus says, just be faithful. Unto what? Unto death. He doesn't say, be faithful, and you'll get an awesome mansion. Be faithful, and you'll get that job that you've been looking for. No, he says, be faithful unto death. Church, are you faithful? No matter what trials you go through, are you being faithful? How do we be faithful? We've got to see Jesus as worthy of it. We've got to see Jesus as worthy of our lives. You know that that song that says, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim. If we're honest, how often is it uh, turn your eyes upon this world? Look full on the glories and pleasures that you can receive now. And the things of the Lord will grow strangely dim in the light of the pleasures I see. You see, we, our love for Jesus dwindles when our love for the world increases. Our ability to stand firm in the middle of trial dwindles the more we're caught up in things of the world and we think that that will bring us life and hope and satisfaction. Instead, we need to realize, use the things of the world, but don't put your hope there. Look back to Jesus. And as you look and see his beauty, see his grace, see the reality that as he is on the cross, he is beckoning us to come and bring all of our sin, all of our shame, and just lay it at his feet. And he is giving us new life. And he is coming to transform us and give us life. When we begin to see all that he offers, we're willing to be faithful until death. And church, if we do that, there's a promise. There's a forever promise, which is fourthly what we see that Jesus shows us the forever promise. You know, it's, 
it's easy to, to, to go through something if you know the end of the story, right? Any of you like sports? Yeah, so a few of us, right? So, uh, I hate to say this, but I am a, I don't hate to say this, I hate it for your sake. I am a Los Angeles Dodger fan. They are the best team in baseball as of right now, okay? If you know history at all, you know in 1988, they were, the, they were the surprise team that made it to the World Series. We made it to the ninth inning. If you actually watch the footage, it's ninth inning, Dodger Stadium. Dodgers are against the Oakland Athletics, and you will see a stream of cars leaving Dodger Stadium. Why? Because it's ninth inning. The best closer in all of baseball, Dennis Eckersley, is on the mound, and all Dodger fans think this game is over. So in a shocking move, the manager, Tommy Lasorda, calls up Kirk Gibson, who's actually too hurt to really walk to the plate, and so he just kind of hobbles all the way up to the plate. And as he gets there, the ball comes down, and it's way outside. Two outs, bottom of the ninth, one on, Dodgers are down by one. And you have this gimpy, older baseball player at the plate. Hope is lost. And as Eckersley throws that ball, he lunges out there with one arm and just swings the bat. And the ball goes out of the park. You see, I love watching that game. The Dodgers won. It was the most spectacular game I could ever imagine. But you know what happens every time I watch that game? I get to the ninth inning and I'm not afraid. I'm not worried like, oh, oh no, how's this? You know, some of you, if you're going to watch a football game this year, you're like, oh, how's this going to happen? Oh, I don't know what's going to go on. You don't know the end. If you're watching a movie, you're like, oh, what's going to happen? I never have to do that. I can sit there eating popcorn. I know how the end of the story is going. They win. Church, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. So we don't have to sit here worried, wondering what is going to happen. He wins. And as he wins, he gives us this promise. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, I will give you the crown of life. What glorious truth that is. But why a crown? Well, in the ancient days, when they would uh, have the Olympic Games, the winners would receive a crown. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, if you're faithful, even unto death, you're getting a crown. You're getting the victor's crown over all things. You are victorious with Jesus. And not only that, look at verse 11. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And hear this, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's only two people recorded in all of history who have not faced the second death. Well, outside of us, you know, Jesus doesn't return. We're all facing that. So our odds are, or who, are, who, are not, who did not face the first death. So our odds are pretty slim that we're going to somehow bypass that first death unless Jesus comes. So we're all going to face that. The question is, what's going to happen when you face the second one? Are you going to be found to have trusted and been faithful to Jesus Christ? Or are you going to have been found to trust in your own efforts, in your own works, in your own abilities? Daryl Johnson in his commentary on this passage actually cites two stories. He says one is from a man in Ghana, Africa. And this man said, look, everyone's going to die. I just said it. Everyone's going to die. Unless Jesus returns, all of us are heading to death. And then he says, you might as well die for a purpose. Like, if it's inevitable, you might as well make it count. You might as well use your life in such a way that you're like, that's how I went out for Jesus Christ. And that's the very thing that Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, 60 years later, does. 
in the middle of a Roman Empire that is hostile towards Christianity, a man who is 86 years old uh, uh, is arrested and brought before the judges because he refused to worship Caesar as God. And listen to what he says. He says, for 86 years I've been Christ's servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So like the world does, they threaten to burn him. And notice what he says. He says, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly. After just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you wish. Church, do you hear what he's saying? I know where I'm going and I know what you're focused on. I don't care. This, this judgment that you're bringing is very tiny, is very small in comparison to eternity with God. If that's what you're going to do, that's fine. Because in the end, I get God forever. Is that your hope? Is that your confidence? That as the things of the world are are changing around us, as as people are looking at you for being, uh, looking at you like you're weird for being here, for reading your Bible, for praying. For trusting and hoping in Jesus is your confidence in Him for all of eternity. That no matter what happens, you can say, hey, bring it on. Because I know where I'm going. And I know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Is that your hope? Thank you.